Welcome back. And our next session is something that I think we've all been looking forward to. You've been able to hear from Mahita already. This session is Talking with Treasury. As you're probably aware, at Connexus Financial Events, we don't give a long, detailed biography of educational achievements and books written and great TED Talks that have been delivered. So you can do that through the dedicated app, and you can also ideally find everyone on places like LinkedIn, but I will give you the full names and their roles. And so we have Stephen Halliburton, who's on stage already, Director, Insurance and Financial Intermediaries Branch, the Treasury Department, and we've heard from already during the table discussions, Mahita Zahid, who's Assistant Secretary, Insurance and Financial Intermediaries Branch, the Treasury Department. A special session, talking with Treasury, moderating the Director of Retail Content at Connexus Financial, Matthew Smith. Thanks so much, Lawrence, and uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, look, really excited about this session. So thanks so much um, for Stephen and Mahita to uh, join us today. And look, I, I want to make this as interactive as possible. Thanks so much for participating throughout the day as well so far. It's been fantastic. Um, so let's just go straight into a Q&A, and really happy to kind of hear from you both um, off the bat uh, what you're working on in particular. So uh, what's, the work, what's the work Treasury, can we just summarise what work Treasury has been doing since the Royal Commission you know, in relation to the financial services space? So I might just give a bit of context. So Stephen's kind of looking after our advice review team, and I look after pretty much the advice portfolio, as well as insurance and a few other things. So a lot of our lives since the Royal Commission and during the Royal Commission has been about implementing the Royal Commission. The government committed to kind of the implementation of the Royal Commission with a very uh, expedient time frame. Now we had a bit of a COVID in the middle and some of our priorities shifted, but really a lot of our focus till date has been to implement um, the recommendations of the Royal Commission Quite a few of them were in the financial advice space, and even the ones that weren't, for example, breach reporting, obviously affects the industry as a whole. So that's kind of what we've been focused on in the last, um, and now lose track of time since the Royal Commission. Um, we're now almost at the tail end of it. Most of the legislation that relates to financial advisors have been implemented. A lot of them come in in, one Octo you know, in October. Some of them come in in July, and then we've got a single disciplinary body, which we've been furiously working on, and that'll kind of go into Parliament, hopefully relatively soon. Then we're kind of done with implementing the legislation. There's obviously a broader implementation task, and then we can kind of take a breath and start thinking very much about what does the future of the industry look like, and that's what you know, kind of Stephen and his teams already kind of started to do the work on. Do you want to take that? Sure. Um. Um, I don't want it to sound like we're going to map out the future of your industry for you. That's, that's really your job, not ours. Uh, we, we try very hard to avoid calling it the future of financial advice because that name was taken. Um, uh, uh, but we are, we are, and I'm sure we'll talk about it at some length, uh, the, um, in, in preparation to... It's, it's still part of the implementation task. It was recommendation 2.3 of the Royal Commission for a review of the measures that have been implemented by governments, regulators, and the industry to uh, improve the quality of financial advice. And that review uh, is, uh, we're in our very early stages. It, it's not expected to kick off formally until next year, but it will conclude next year. Commissioner Hayne was very clear about that. Uh, and um, uh, we're in the very early stages, and that, what that means is we have a very open door policy, and we want to have some broad conversations uh, with you and with other stakeholders. 
about what we need to look at, but we do intend for it to be a broad and comprehensive look at the, uh, uh, the, the regulatory framework for financial advice. Yeah, look, before we get on to the advice review, um, some of the Treasury seems to be really central in a lot of the um, you know, actions being taken in the advice industry at the moment. So firstly, there was um, FASIA. Um, now, uh, just to give me a sense for how Treasury interacts with government, can you give me a bit of a sense for um, you know, some of the recommendations or some of your involvement in relation to um, the carriage of FASIA? Um, yeah, well, so Treasury is the government's key economic advisor yep. uh, within the public service, uh, and, uh, in, and we take a whole-of-economy perspective to the advice we provide, including, in our case, to financial sector issues. Uh, and um, FASIA was, of course, within our portfolio of interests, but FASIA is an independent body. It was a, established as a, a, a Commonwealth company. Um, and uh, it, 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 just like ASIC, um, uh, has uh, an independent mind, uh, an independent set of uh, functions. Uh, unlike ASIC, it is a company and exists sort of a little bit further outside the, the, the public sector, if you like, than we do, uh, than, than ASIC does. Um, but um, they're still sort of within our, uh, our remit. So is the question about how did we come to this point with the government's uh, announcement of, of FASIA's Demise, for want of a better word. <laughs> yeah, so, so my understanding is that um, FASIA was, um, you know, is, has become Treasury's, under Treasury's purview now. Are you sure, how did that come about? Sure. I suppose what, what's, to be specific about what's happening is that the, the government is winding up FASIA and the functions that it currently um, exercises will be vested instead in the minister and ASIC. So the legislative functions will be vested in the minister in the way that most legislative, uh, delegated legislative functions under the Act are mm -hmm. ordinarily uh, exercised by a minister. Um, and the administrative functions will be exercised by ASIC. Um, Treasury is the minister's source of advice for those functions. So we are not the decision makers for the professional standards, but obviously the government will look to us as it will look to uh, many, uh, many other sources of advice about uh, uh, how those standards should look once the government assumes responsibility for those standards, which is not until assuming legislation passes, uh, according to the draft that was released in April, um, 1st of January next year. And maybe just to add one thing is, there's, you know, governments go through phases and uh, Treasury's constant. I mean, one thing that's uh, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer and the Minister Hume's also been clear on, the government's kind of got a view about whose role is it in the system to be making and setting policy. And Parliament takes a very strong view about this as well. Uh, so part of the shift to FASIA kind of just really reflects the government's position that it is the role of the minister, it's the role of government, it's the role of Parliament to make policy. Now, if you're talking about big P policy, that's primary legislation, it should go through Parliament. If it's regulations and standard setting, um, a lot of that's kind of coming to the Minister, and that means we advise, we draft, we do all the legwork, um, the Minister signs and obviously has a lot of input in terms of what her views is. Um, so it's kind of a part of also a broader view from government around who the players are in the system, who's really focusing on policy, what is an appropriate role for um, ASIC as our regulator, you know, 
bodies like FASIA and the minister and the government's kind of very much focused on centralising a lot of that. So Treasury is taking on, it's not just in the financial advice space, consumer data right, we've taken on um, rulemaking powers from the ACCC, for example. So it's a broad, kind of broad brush government context that says actually the government is elected to make those decisions and that's who it should be. Yeah. I mean, I hope you don't think it's a bit of a tangent, but I think that it's quite interesting the timing of FASIA being set up and then the Royal Commission happening um, and then it seemed like we had a, a, a body that was a little bit, you know, set up for an industry that was, um, you know, before the, that seemed like something that's quite different, you know, before the Royal Commission and after the Royal Commission. Do you, mm. is that, do you think, a fair observation? So, I think yes and no in some senses. I mean, if you had perfect hindsight, would we be here today? No. I mean, hopefully we'd still be here in this beautiful setting with you know, similar <laughs> people, but... Um, having the same conversations, no. Um, FASIA was set up, it's, it's been a long journey, right, to try and get to a position where the advice industry is seen as a profession. Now, would we have orchestrated the sequences in exactly the same way? There's a large quantity of regulation and legislation coming through the Hain Oil Commission. You know, if we knew we were going to have a Royal Commission, would we have done FASIA at the time we did? Open question, anyone's bet. Potentially, governments like getting out ahead of royal commissions by announcing a whole bunch of legislative reforms so the commission can take those into account. That's just generally, you know, no government really likes policy setting done primarily through a royal commission mechanism. Um, you know, would we have still done it this way? No one's elected me into any parliamentary um, setting, so I can't comment. Um, would the sequencing have been quite the same? You, you know, there's a few question marks given the scale of reforms coming through off the back of the Royal Commission. Mm. I was Do really you like my public service meandering answer to that? No, look, I mean, <laughs> I, I appreciate that you're not in the position making those views, but I think your view is very, very interesting given your position you're in. Um, uh, the, a lot of the conversation around principles and prescription this morning I thought was quite interesting. Um, you know, uh, the, the code of ethics, I mean, is there, is there scope to kind of um, enhance or change some of those guidelines, do you think? So, first and foremost, um, I plead decision for minister. That, that's just my tagline for most things. So, obviously, the minister takes over responsibility for the code of ethics from when the legislation passes in January kind of is the time frames. Um, would there be an opportunity for um, reform? Absolutely. Um, has the minister committed to anything? No. It will depend very much on, I mean, obviously, FASIA is operational until then. There's looking at their um, okay. code. Um, they're thinking about what might need to change. When we get to that point, when the minister has the power, we will obviously look at, um, you know, what needs to change and why, and also in the broader context of where everything else is and, you know, Parliamentary legislative calendars tend to be incredibly busy. We Treasury turns out the most pieces of legislation pretty much of anyone in government. Um, there's a handful of people who are allowed to draft parliamentary you know, legislation. So those are all the things that government take into balance to going, okay, this is a problem. Is this my biggest problem? Is this where I want to direct my resources to? Um, and that conversation obviously will happen with the minister when she's got the powers. And to summarise then, um, from 1st of January next year, there's potential that she could potentially change the guidelines in relation to... If that's something, yeah. if, if that's something that the government wanted to take. Okay, and not before then. Uh, so before then, she doesn't have the power to do yes. it. So, yep. you know. Okay. Um, on the single disciplinary body, is that kind of an area that Treasury's been spending a little bit of time recently? A lot of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much time. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, how the single, single disciplinary... Um, 
body conversations have evolved and, and, and what's, what's some of the work you've been doing there? So, and I'm going to forget the date, Stephen, I don't know if yeah. you know if you, the date. So we've consulted on um, a piece of legislation. Um, we've continued to kind of have engagements and hear from industry about um, the, the version of the legislation we've put out there. There are a couple of kind of really key points. One is around individual registration versus licensee registration. There's been comments that we've received very much around um, the process and how many things goes to the panel, how many things ASICs have discretion about. So we've been working that through, um, obviously, again, government, you know, at this late stage, government takes a really strong interest. So there's been a lot of discussion with the um, Senator Hume, um, her office, the Treasurer's office about um, some of the finer details. And then we're just in the last at the end stages, I hope, of being able to finalise a piece of legislation to give to government to introduce into parliament. Yeah. Uh, anything you'd add there, Stephen? I don't think so. Uh, you'll, you know, that will probably be the next step is you will see introduction of, yeah. of the legislation. I'm sure the minister will keep everyone informed. <laughs> Given the experience we had with FASIA and it being set up, um, possibly, you know, at you know an in interesting time in the in the industry's evolution, are we doing the single disciplinary body? Are we learning from our mistakes in that regard? Are we making sure that the, the composition and the nature of the single disciplinary body is fit for an industry, say, in five years' time, rather than retrospective? Uh, I think so. I hope so. Uh, I don't know that the official line is that FASIA was a mistake, but, um, but I take your point. <laughs> They're my words, not yours. <laughs> my words, not theirs. Um, uh, certainly, yeah, uh, composition of decision makers was an important element of this. And, and, but this, was, this has been a longer discussion about the appropriate discipline arrangements in the, the system, including in the, you know, the code monitoring uh, uh, arrangements that, um, that are going to be superseded by the single disciplinary body. Mm -hmm. uh, that judgment by peers was a pretty essential element uh, in, um, in any professional uh, disciplinary system. And that's, that's what the draft legislation yeah. sets up. Um, you know, in a hybrid way, in conjunction with ASIC, leveraging ASIC's existing processes and investigative powers and so on to minimise, uh, you know, the risks of, of creating yet another body that could go in and knock on your door and demand your papers and things like that. And if we can read between the lines with some of the conversation this morning with the Law Reform Commission and other conversations we've had, that the individual licensing regime seems to be something that's sitting in the background as potentially... Um, you know, something that in the next three to five years perhaps might come in. Again, that's that's my timeline. But are you, you know, do do you, um, you know, is one of the reasons a single disciplinary body was set up in that way in relation to code monitoring was to accommodate um, individual licensing? I think it's a separate issue. It's related, of course. So, so what what the legislation implements is recommendation two point ten of the Royal Commission, which was not just for a single disciplinary body, but for a new disciplinary system. And one element of that is the disciplinary body, but uh, another, in fact, the first element was a universal registration system. Now, you know, advisors are already on the far, so what, what does it mean? Um, and the, the draft legislation sets out a, a way that that, that would work, um, so that uh, before you can provide financial advice, you are formally registered as a financial advisor. Um, so that that creates a, a framework for registration. I think one of the difficulties I have with the um, 
the discussion about individual licensing, which I, you know, we, we hear all the time, and it's an interesting idea that, that, is, that needs to be explored, is that it's very hard to explore it without getting down to the finer details of what the proposal mm. actually is. And um, uh, if, it, if it is you know, a, a wide-scale change to the current arrangements, you know, abandoning the AFSL framework for financial advice, and instead imposing licensing requirements as they currently are on advisors or something like that, um, then that's, that, that's a whole other project that isn't really, you know, uh, either assisted or hindered by the SDB legislation. Okay. And I think I'll just make the point around individual licensing. I've had lots of conversations. This has been running, um, and Pamela's around in the room somewhere. This has been running all the way through the Royal Commission. It came up, you know, in that context as well. Every time I've had a conversation with someone about exactly what individual licensing means, there's not a consistent view about what that would mean, where the liability would attach, liability for what, to whom, um, how compensation would be um, paid, how the market would access professional indemnity insurance, who's responsible for the accuracy of disclosure statements. There's a lot of kind of, you know, or are we talking about throwing out, to back to Stephen's point, are we talking about throwing out the AFSL regime, which has certain core pillars, and starting something new, which is, not kind of the vein in how people talk about it. So one thing with individual licensing is, we all use the terms individual licensing, but we use it differently, and there are some real kind of market-wide complexities. Now, professional indemnity insurance is, has been a problem. Like, actually, I've heard a lot, I also look after insurance. Um, having 24,000 individual licensees, individual advisors trying to access Australia's PI market, good luck. Um, you know, so it, how do we solve those problems? There's multiple problems you'd need to solve. But there's to be, as to back to Stephen's point and to your direct question, doesn't kind of change one of the things. I mean, one thing that is really hard to do with legislation, it's such a blunt instrument, is to set it up to be completely future-proof. Now, in five years' time, I don't know what the advice industry looks like. And I think a lot of the conversation we've had today is um, we don't, you know, we don't know the banks have left. You know, five years ago, would I have known the banks would have all left the advice industry? Probably not. Um, IWF, AMP. Now, is that, are they the two pillars of the advice sector in five years' time? Um, I don't, you know, I'm not going to bet my house on it. So there, it's very hard to design legislation to be future-proof. It's easier to design the architecture and the infrastructure, and that's kind of thing, and the LRC's work around how do you hire, you know, how do you do the hierarchy of laws? How do you think about definitions? How much do you do in prescription? There are some of the things we'll think about, mm. but I'm not gonna sit here and say yeah. I know what the industry looks like in five years. Okay, so what, how do you think an individual licensing regime could work, <laughs> um, if not for, you know, I mean, single, I understand your point about the single disciplinary body isn't integral necessarily to individual licensing regime, but how do you think an individual licensing regime could work? I think that's, well, uh, in our review, we are going to be looking at licensing. There's no doubt about that. Licensing framework that we have at the moment really dates from the, uh, the Wallace inquiry, CLERP 6, the FSR reform, so late 90s, early 2000s, um, which is, you know, it's a well-entrenched feature of the system. That doesn't mean that it, it's you know, not susceptible to review and not susceptible to change, and, and we will look carefully at that. Um, those reviews, you know, they identify good reasons for the current framework. Um, you know, I, th I think the cost of, of supervision uh, is, you know, well, the cost of regulation, I should say, uh, is, was an important driver that was uh, identified by Wallace and in CLERP 6. Um, uh, that, 
you can see those costs um, increasing dramatically if ASIC is suddenly regulating every single advisor mm. and looking at them very closely. So as, as with any policy, it's a, it's a cost and benefit weighing exercise. Um, I, you know, I, we're looking forward to hearing the proposals <laughs> from industry, but from yep. those who are proposing uh, an individual licensing arrangement, exactly uh, how it looks. I think there are lots of ways that it could work. Um, is it going to be efficient? Is it going to increase or decrease the number of advisors who are prepared to, to join this industry and you know take out their own mm. PII if that's the arrangement? Um, those are the things we'll have to think about, um, but uh, it's, it's not our proposal at this stage, so we're yes. looking forward to hearing about that. I mean, thanks for entertaining the conversation. <laughs> it was uh, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost feels like it's a, a kind of a super regulator or a different type of regulation than the current regulator. Yeah, well, the regulation is, is changing pretty regularly. So the, 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 uh, the fact that we're going to have a single disciplinary body now, like that's a big change, yes. a, big, a big step in you know, the, the professionalisation um, that, that we've talked about in several sessions today mm -hmm. is, um, and Commissioner Hayne identified this, that a hallmark of a profession is a, uh, a, a coherent and, and um, effective system of, of professional discipline. And um, you know, the government's introducing that now, um, the, that, that's not to say that, that that couldn't become something more industry-based in, in the future. Uh, and I think we're all looking forward to seeing how that, uh, that goes in the future. And as the industry sort of completes its professionalisation journey, that is when you can sort of imagine uh, a regulator that uh, doesn't need to be involved in every single uh, licensee issue, whether those licensees are individual or, or firms. Uh, really interesting. And uh, look, I think there's a really good opportunity, everyone in the room, to, to ask some questions soon. So uh, in a couple of minutes, we'll go to some questions. But just coming back to your review. So what's the scope of your review? Um, what, what do you intend to find? And will you be doing what tools and mechanisms we'll be using for the review? Will it be like the old days, some kind of shadow shopper thing? Or will there be, I know you've been holding roundtables, but what are, what are some other ways that you'll be um, gathering information? Sure. Um, I don't know that we'll be shadow shopping. And I'll start off by saying, obviously, we've got some views, but ultimately it will be the mm. government who decides. It's the government's review, and I need to kind of put that out there. I'm very comfortable kind of going, this is what Treasury's thinking, but ultimately we'll give advice, the minister will make a decision on what the review is going to be, and we're doing our thinking, and these sort of engagements are part of actually thinking about what should our advice be to government, um, rather than kind of having a set view. Mm. Yeah, and one thing we don't have yet is terms of reference, so, uh, and, but that is something we're thinking about and we'll be providing advice to, to government on, but ultimately that's a matter for government, you know, exactly what the scope will be. Um, as, as we've said a few times, we hope the scope is pretty broad. We don't want it so, uh, we don't want it to be aimless. Uh, we don't want it to be so, you know, comprehensive that it struggles to get anything done. We do want to zero in on areas where we think or you tell us that there is the most scope for uh, making the market for financial advice work more efficiently, you know, bringing down costs where there are unnecessary uh, regulatory costs being imposed. Um, but uh, we don't want, so Commissioner Hain didn't limit the, um, the scope of the review in terms of, you know, it should just be the measures that, that I'm recommending or it should just be um, faux for onwards or anything like that. It was, it, it was uh, left open-ended. It was just a review of the effectiveness of the measures that have been introduced to improve the quality of advice. And for us, that does stretch back to um, FSR and the, the, the licensing and disclosure mm -hmm. regime that that sort of um, uh, put
put in place. So, I mean, a couple of the things we'll say is we'd be looking at data. So ASIC's already collecting data in the life insurance um, commission space. Um, we would be looking to ASIC to collect some more data on the general insurance um, kind of other conflicted remuneration space. And then we'd be looking at other forms of data. One big kind of issue is when you talk about quality of advice, quality means different things. You can have a technical failure on FDS and having 100 technical failure on FDS is a data point, but outcomes is another data point. Um, thinking about what the market looks like and data and a lot of um, granularity and understanding of the market. Um, also affordability is something that we're really focused on as part of this is actually what are the drivers of affordability um, so, you know, any Treasury-led review, we take a market focus. So it's what's the economics of advice. Um, and the economics of advice isn't just, you know, the economics for industry, it's the economics for consumers and the broader macro lens. Um, so they're the kind of, you know, it, it's that's Treasury's approach to doing these reviews is we look at who the market is, who does the market intersect with, what is happening in the market and try and gather as much data. So there will be kind of data-led pieces, and this, that is one where we would be looking to, you know, um, industry bodies to try and, you know, collect some of that data and work, try and work through um, various different, in, you know, industry bodies to try and get that picture for us. Um, we're in the early phases of really working through what data pieces we'd need, so, you know, this is kind of a call out to the sector to say, if you can think about really good data sets, come and chat to us. That's an area which is really lacking in something like advice because I can't go to the Hilda, you know, for banking if I want credit data. I go to the ABS, I go to APRA, I go and I have a data set. For a market like ours, which is much more disparate, it's actually much harder to know what are the right data points to look at. Yeah. So there you go. Great opportunity for people in the audience. And Connexus has a great database as well. So perhaps, Colin, we can uh, work with Treasury on, on that one as well. Um, uh, you mentioned um, life insurance, uh, and you mentioned the um, affordability of advice. They seem, my understanding was that the life insurance originally rested with ASIC, and then Treasury has taken on the purview of the life, the life insurance, life insurance um, framework review, uh, and then separately, advice affordability was with ASIC as well. But you're just kind of leaning on some of the, the work they've already done in affordability? So ASIC's doing a current piece of work which looks at what can ASIC do. So ASIC doesn't get to make policy. ASIC doesn't own the levers around policy. Mm -hmm. But ASIC's doing a piece of work um, through Kate Metz's team which is really looking at what are, the, what are their processes? What big guys do they have? Where is ASIC part of the friction? Um, that isn't set in law, that isn't set in legislation, that isn't part of the framework that we've created. What are they doing and what could they do differently to help with the affordability adv advice, i.e. what could be done now? Um, that's a piece of work we're really closely plugged into and what they do is they feed us anything which kind of goes outside their bucket, which is actually this is law reform. Um, thanks, Treasury, this is now your problem, go figure. Um, so we, our two teams kind of talk f almost constantly, like we have regular catch-ups every month and fortnightly. Um, so that's how the two sides is working through, is like where's the friction that ASIC has created or ASIC, um, or is coming from something that ASIC controls? Um, and anything to do with lead change kind of comes to us. Hmm. I mean, one observation about that is that um, I haven't seen uh, a response to a consultation process like the response the industry <coughs> gave to ASIC and its uh, unmet advice or um, affordability of advice project. and. Um, it makes me really hopeful that we can um, get a similar level of interest in, in our, our space where we are talking about re law reform and where those 
those ideas that are beyond sort of, well, can you tinker with your guidance, please? Uh, can really get some legs, so please, um, you know, there's going to be informal and formal consultation as part of our process over the next, um, you know, 12 to 18 months, and um, uh, please reach out at any time. So we haven't said anything about um, the lift review, and uh, we haven't really said anything about the composition of the single distributed body, body panel. So there's a lot out there for people to ask about. Colin, let's go. Let's dive into some audience questions. We've got about 10 minutes left. We know you're getting a bit sleepy. It's been a big day. Oh, thanks, Nathan. Dive in. Your name and organisation, please. And just uh, uh, to make this a little easier for you all, uh, this section is off the record 100%. So please be brave. There's about 91 of you in the room and 50 of you are CEOs. So we expect a very robust next 10, 15 minutes. Rare opportunity to talk with the decision makers of your industry and its future reform. Uh, and thank you both for being here. I think it's terrific that you're here and engaging. We've never seen ASIC, APRA or Treasury more engaged uh, as we do at the moment. Okay, Nathan. Thanks, Colin. I'll just change everything I was going to say now that we're off the record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nathan Jacobson, Eastern Investments. Um, good to see you again, Mahita and Stephen. Uh, it's been really valuable for me. I know a number of us to meet with you every quarter and have these conversations. So thank you for coming again. Uh, you know, you've really covered a lot of the design stuff um, really well. The, the, the question, and, and I think... It never has felt as good as it does now around the level of collaboration between Treasury and licensees um, in particular. Um, yeah, I know you're getting lots of great feedback. Uh, you know, it's a really positive journey. My question for you two is, what could we be better at? What are the glaring issues you see around the way we work with you? Because this is, this couldn't be a bigger question. How do we, how do we basically rewrite everything um, and maintain consumer protection in the process. It's, it's not a small question. And uh, I, I don't envy your task, but also I don't envy our task. So how do we, what, what more we can do to help the process? So I might start and let Stephen jump in. Um, so I think the collaboration has been fantastic. So I think a couple of things from my side is, oftentimes by the time an issue comes to us, you know, the industry's taken a long while to figure out what the issue is and we really appreciate that. So by the time the issue comes to us, um, it's a consolidated in issue, but the issue is now time-pressing, critical, and we work to ministers with very, very full schedules and trying to get something on the radar, um, you know, right at the nth minute sometimes can be hard. So I think as early as possible, looping Treasury in, having a discussion is really useful. The other side that I've kind of had an observation of, especially doing the Royal Commission legislation, is when we consult on legislation, the way licensees are constructed, the way industry is constructed, is the lawyers get involved. First and foremost, um, their lawyers look at our lawyers' piece of legislation, um, and oftentimes the business input doesn't feed into when the legislation's being developed. And time and time again, we kind of come, after the legislation's gone into parliament, it's sitting there or is just around implementation, that the actual people in the businesses who do the implementation, sometimes they, the lawyers talk to the compliance teams, that's fantastic, but oftentimes the business input doesn't come in till the rubber's about to hit the road and the political appetite and the ability to kind of change things right at the end, you know, there are design decisions we take much earlier on in the process. So it's a challenge for industry because there's such bulk of things we throw out there and it's not always comprehensible, um, but having, in having the business, having the product owners, having the kind of individual advisors engaged in the process earlier on really kind of helps us get that feedback when there are decisions we can make without compromising an outcome. Um, 
I, I've enjoyed the, the conversations that have been taking place today about having one voice or unifying messages. I don't want to say that we only want to hear one version of, of, of the truth because we want to hear you know, all angles of a problem. Uh, but I do think that'll be helpful. Um, I think even if, if you do have a unified voice that recognises that there are other angles, for example, there are a lot of bad apples in the industry and, and a solution that, uh, or a legislative framework that you guys find frustrating because, you know, by and large, the bad apples are not the people in this room, um, exists because of the bad apples and, and we can't ignore them. And so uh, when you, you are identifying proposals and, and solutions, uh, to the problems that we're consulting on or, or, or that we're not and you think we should be. Uh, just being mindful that, that we do still have to think about the lowest common denominator as well as thinking about how the industry and the market as a whole is working. Just to be clear, we screen out all the bad apples from this room before <laughs> anyone uh, got up here. You want to go to this table here? Just in your name and organisation, please. Yeah. Front. I'm uh, Ken Whitten, FPA. I won't talk to individual registration or licensing. Dante's speaking <laughs> tomorrow, so I'll, uh, I'll leave that one to him. But look, um, we did very much welcome um, advisors being out, the TPB, so to speak, with the uh, draft legislation. Sorry, Tom. We did very much welcome TPB being out, so to speak, for uh, individual uh, advisors in the draft legislation. But in the finer detail, though, cars and licensees are still captured. Um, so in our submission, we talked about that running the risk of, of more duplication. Can you comment on or, or has there been a solution to that in re your review of the, the consultation work? Uh, so that's one where I'm going to plead, we'll have to wait till those decisions have been taken and the legislation's finalised, uh, you know, we've taken those feedback, we've kind of given advice to Minister and at that point in time we stop talking a little bit just because that's that's the game we have to play. Okay. So I'm not sure if I'm close enough to the detail to go into all of that. I'm aware of the issue, but I'm not in the weeds of exactly how it would work. Yeah, but look. We might come back. I, I think we should. I mean, we're aware of the issue. We're, we're, it was not the intention of the, it was the intention of the policy to make it a, a pretty clean carve out from TPB. Now, if it's, if it's not, you know, and we thought that the law that we put out did that, if that's not the case, you know, we will be, and fortunately it's neither Mahita nor I who are, uh, uh, going through that, that finer detail, fortunately for us at least. <laughs> uh, uh, so um, if it's not, you know, they'll be working on a solution or we'll, we'll have determined, you know, uh, some other course that, that, as Mahita says, you'll just have to wait and see. I'm sorry. Okay, last question. We're on time. So Philip Wynn over here. Uh, Philip Wynn, Profile Financial Services. Um, I haven't, out of the Royal Commission, you talked about bad apples. Um, from a framework perspective, um, responsible managers in licensees, um, a lot of people up in board level had no idea what was going on at, at grassroots. Um, there's no real accountability for responsible managers at law, like it's just a, a position of office. Um, it may talk to some of the single registration versus licensee. Is that is that on the radar in terms of looking at what the role of responsible managers are in licensees? Because if, if there's a bit more accountability, they're going to take more of an interest at what their advisors are actually doing and kicking out the bad apples. So, kind of, it hasn't come through in the Royal Commission piece. One thing the government's in implementing is a financial accountability regime, which looks at really mapping um, accountability to senior people in um, regulatory positions. Um, the government kind of took a decision that they would do the potentially regulated industry first. 
um, and then think about whether to extend to the broader asset space. So most of the advice sector doesn't kind of get picked up in that. Um, most, not all, well, IWF and AMP, you know. Um, but in terms of that responsible manager point, it has come up in the past in various different conversations, but never as a, like I've never heard it other than the accountability regime context as being a key driver. So it's something that we can think about, but to be honest, I don't think that's ever really been presented to me as a key kind of lever that we should be looking at um, bringing into the regime. I don't know, Stephen, if you've heard more about that one than me. No, I think that's true, um, which is not to say it's not a source of concern, but I mean, it's quite interesting, I think, in the context of the ALRC review, because uh, when you think about the hierarchy of, of laws and things that, that you know, are, are not quite laws, like guidance and things like that, the RM is a, is a creature of ASIC, really, and, and ASIC's guidance on how it thinks you should go about meeting your 912A obligations of acting efficiently, honestly, and fairly. And um, uh, so if we were to use that as a lever, well, first of all, we would have to put that in legislation and a whole lot of sort of pain goes along with that. Um, you know, that, that is not a flexible uh, approach to, um, to fixing a problem, which, yeah, I think, as, as Mahita says, is not a problem that's been brought to our attention. But it is, yeah, part of what we are doing is looking more deeply into how firms actually work. I think we, in Treasury, at least we tell ourselves, we have a very good sense of, of the, how the regulatory framework works because, you know, we, we sort of helped write it. Um, we, because we're economists, we tell ourselves again that we have a, a fair idea of how the market for financial advice works, but we don't really know how the business models work and how it feels on the ground. Um, and that's really what we will be looking to you for some insights into. Yeah, look, um, thanks so much, Stephen and Mahito. It's uh, really generous uh, to offer your time and um, uh, your candor as well. So um, thank you, everybody. Uh, everybody just um, round of applause.